0: our Savior, our Lord, and our life.
1: Hello again, friends, and welcome one more time to the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm John Russon, your host. I'm here today with my dear friend, Pastor Frank Friedman. How are you today, Frank?
2: Doing very well down in steamy South Louisiana.
1: Well, again, I want to register a complaint because up here in northern Maine, where it's always supposed to be beautiful, at least for the two months we have of summer— Uh, Some evil finger of Louisiana weather has found its way north, and it's kind of hot today.
2: Maybe the Lord wants you to empathize
1: with me. Maybe, but (laughs) after decades in South Louisiana, I got a snootful. I don't know if that qualifies as empathy, but it qualifies as a snootful, that's for sure. Well, dear friends, thanks for joining us today. You've caught us in the middle of a series that we are calling Liberating the Church with His Life. And this is really just a focus on how Pastor Frank and I went about introducing what I'm now coming to call the full gospel of the new covenant, the message of Christ is life to our church in Baton Rouge. And if you were with us in the first two episodes, you heard us talk about how we both came to understand the message and began to grow in it. And we talked about how we backed each other up, how we supported, encouraged each other in this walk. We talked about also what we did as a pastor and an elder to shepherd our people, to teach them, to bring them into the knowledge of the crisis their life. And we also talked about last episode, some of the specific tactics that we use, Sunday school classes, small groups, parenting classes. Of course, we use Bill and Annabelle Gillum's books a lot and their videos as well. And we want to pick up today with the reaction in the body. And you might think, wow, what a great story. How can they push back? But I'm here to tell you, and Frank will concur, they certainly did. Mm -hmm. Because as our church grew, and we'll start out today, Frank, with this thought, as our church began to grow, because we were on the radio, and we went from one service to two, and eventually two to three, um clicks began to form in our body and we began to hear these phrases like, this is our church and what are these people doing to our church? And it's almost like the sentiment that Paul expressed in Galatians 1 when he described himself as being zealous for the traditions of the fathers. You know, Paul wasn't zealous for God. He was zealous for what everybody had built over the years. And boy, this sounds exactly like what we experience, doesn't it, Frank?
2: Yeah, John, you know, I've had, as you have had, 30 years to think about this. Uh, it was a crazy thing. Uh, you come with the truth. We know the truth sets people free. It's a glorious thing because we get a new identity. We're righteous in Christ. We get delivered from the oppressor of the law, which always kills and condemns, and delivered into an economy of grace where you receive all that God is to whatever you need in the moment, and you think, what would people have to get upset about? (laughs) My goodness. But you know i think there's there's two thoughts john that i've i've pondered this greatly because you know you and i we did some things really well in this battle but we also did some things not as well as we could have and uh one is i think that we live in such a topsy turvy world that creates such insecurity you know we don't know What's coming around the corner that can be a job loss, a car accident, a, a child getting sick? And it's there's nothing certain. And I think what happens is that there's one place on this planet we can keep things the same, and that's the church. And if I can just keep it the same and not get any surprises. I have this sanctuary in a way, and the you know the reason I'm thinking like this, John, is that there was a church when I was going to seminary, and I went and spoke at it. I was on their pulpit supply ministry, and the church went, "Will you come and be our pastor?" And I said, "No, I'm still going to seminary." And they said, "Well, we don't care." And the history was they had been about 500 people; uh, they were down to about 120. And so I met with them and I said, well, I'd consider coming, but these are the things we'd have to do a little differently. And they said to me, oh, no, that's not the way we do it around here. So about six months later that I got invited back and now there were 60 people and they said, would you be our pastor? And I said, well, we'd need to change a few things. And oh, no, that's not the way we do it. We've always done it this way. And I said, well, then we can't go any further. And then about six months later, I came back and there were 20 people. <laughs> and again, would you be our pastor? And I formed him. I said, guys, what you're doing didn't work. And no, and, oh, this is the way we've always done it. Well, I never got invited back, but I did find out about six months after that, they sold the church, closed the doors and gave the money to missions. And I think that's one of the things that happens to us. We... Boy, there's one place that stays the same, and there's never any surprises, and it's my church. And the problem is, it's not my church. And, you know, one of the people came up to me, John, and it was about six months in, and we had doubled in size. And they came up and said, Frank Friedman, you took our church away from us. And I said, well, sweetheart, it was never your church to begin with. And I didn't take it. We're just giving it back to Jesus, and and I think that's one of my. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that, John? No,
1: I I, I think you're right. Um, it's difficult to. Well, as I am as I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking, well, is the church really the only secure place we have? And for many people, it is, because it tends to be so traditional, uh, so constant, especially if we are raised in a a very liturgical or catechismal type church as I was, I mean, it took forever to stop speaking Latin and start speaking Mm -hmm. English. So some of these changes happen really slowly. And to be honest, when we started there, a lot of changes happened really fast. And uh, perhaps, you know, for some of our listeners who are trying to figure out what to do in their specific bodies, this is an area where we probably didn't do as well as we thought Uh, I'm the type of person, just my personality is, well, let's change things so we can do it better. But I know now that that's a pretty unnerving way for some people to face issues. And it's scary for them. So I think we struck some fear into some people's hearts because of the things that were happening and the way we were just leading ahead uh, with perhaps not as much shepherding and attention to the fears that they felt. You know, their fears were not grounded, but nonetheless, they were theirs. Yeah.
2: And People so we, don't uh, like we change. sort of
1: charged ahead.
2: Yeah. Yeah. People don't like change. You know, they, they like things to be secure. And, and so they don't get surprised. But, you know, remember, John, some of those changes uh, we had no control over, too. I mean, when you double in size in a year and then double again in another eight months, uh, change is going to be forced on you. And, you know, when I candidated, you were there. Uh, one of the questions to me was, what will you change here? And I said, nothing. I want to come and get to know you and you get to know me and then we'll see. But then, bam, you know, this growth took place and change was forced upon all of us. And like you say, I think we could have done a lot better job of shepherding, maybe held some town meetings, let people vent their frustration, you know, speak love and and uh, truth into those frustrations. And yeah, you know, that's one of the things I agree with you. We certainly could have done better. But I think um, there's, more, there's more
1: to it though, Frank. Uh, sure, we could have done better, but there is another change that I believe was happening in the, in the hearts and minds of these people that uh, we had no control over. And that mm-hmm. is that we were teaching the truth as the spirit was teaching it to us. Right. And these people, you know, you and I, we had to unlearn a mm-hmm. lot of what we had learned earlier. And a lot of conceptions we had about God and ourselves and how we worked in concert with God, they had to be cast aside because they were wrong. And so yeah. it's a, for some people I've learned, it's really hard to unlearn what you think, you know, and wrap your hands around The truth, which you've never really thought about before, because it's different from everything you've ever believed in the past.
2: Oh, my goodness, John, you've just struck a major chord. You know, when we got there, I prayed, I said, where do we start? And the Holy Spirit led me to the book of Ephesians. You know, as you know, it's been called the treasure chest of the New Testament, where the Holy Spirit just says, here's what I've done for you. And he puts all these glorious things out that he's done, almost like a Christmas morning. Yes, indeed. And uh, and so I thought, well, let's just start there. What a great message for the next many, many months to the people of God. Look who you are. Look what you have. And it exploded against us the first Sunday uh, because Paul says to the saints at Ephesus. And so I spent 45 minutes or so teaching that we were saints going all over the New Testament. Paul to the saints of Philippi, Paul to the saints of Colossae. He even calls those sinfully sick Corinthian saints. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Instantly, this woman came up, and she's one of the leaders in the church, hands on her hips, and I'll never forget it. She said, Frank Friedman, I don't care what you say. I'm a sinner. And I said, well, ma'am, it's not an issue of what I said. It's what your father's word said. And she wouldn't hear it. And part of what was said to me is, who are you, Um. You're teaching us that we're not sinners, but saints. When I've sat under this famous pastor and this famous pastor, and boy, John, when you've heard for 35, 40 years that you're a sinner by well-renowned teachers of the Bible, and then all of a sudden some young upstart from California says, that's not true but the key, you know, it's, it's hard to hear, Uh, but the key was we had to keep turning them back to the new Testament. These were not our words. These were the father's words, but like you say, if you've heard error, it's hard to say I was wrong or I misunderstood, or I didn't know. It's really hard to do that.
1: And you know, this is where Frank uh, I know you and I have known each other for decades. And I think I can say safely that we both are, I don't think we like it, but we are comfortable if we find something that we know we've been believing and it's totally wrong. You know, you and I will say, well, gosh, (laughs) I guess I was wrong. I guess I better start believing the truth and what do I have to fix now? Uh, because I now have been behaving a, a way that's, that's not right. Uh, you and I are more comfortable with that than many people are. And so, uh, I think it's important. You hit on something that I think is, is key. Had we gone in with uh, all the, the jargon, the rhetoric, the phrases, you know, the higher life, the divine life, the, you know, whatever the, the current buzzwords happen to be, instead of drawing our, uh, our reference directly from scripture, uh, they might have been able to just dismiss us, but it's really hard to dismiss the truth. Of Scripture because it's God's Word, yeah. So it's uh, it, that was probably a a really fortunate thing we had on our side. I'm not sure we consciously made that choice, but uh, it certainly worked out so that their beef was not with us wholly. Their right. beef was with Father's Word and the way th- we were doing some things too. But their oh, beef yeah. was
2: more with Him than with anything. Well, you know, John, you were there in Delaware when I stood up on Sunday morning after father opened my eyes to the new Testament. And I told the church, I apologize. I I was wrong. You know, we've been doing church with the mixture of old and new covenant, and we're going to become new, new covenant purists. And I'll never forget. One person came up to me and said, did you just get saved? <laughs> and I thought, my goodness. But, you know, I think looking back, John, I think, the battle for truth really picked up in in intensity when about a year later, we did a series on the grace of God. And that really turned the heat up. And because I think people really like the law because it gives them a measuring rod by which to judge themselves. Uh, It's a fence and the fence provides security. And it also though, provides them a measuring rod against other people. And you know, our church was largely professional people, educated people. And so that law enabled them just like in Luke 18 with the Pharisee and the sinner to kind of point at other people and say, boy, I'm really doing well. And of course, grace rips out that rug. Um, you know, that was Nicodemus's problem. You mean start over? Do you mean everything I've done counts nothing? I'm a Pharisee. I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm the teacher in Israel. None of that counts. And Jesus had to repeat himself. Yeah, you'd start over, son. Got uh, to be born again. All that counts nothing. And boy, That is hard for law keepers to come to grips with. Uh, You got that right. Apostle Paul,
1: uh, if we read Galatians correctly, once he met Jesus on the Damascus Damascus Road, took the better part of three years in Arabia and in Damascus before he even went down (laughs) to the apostles to talk to them. And so it took him a while to unlearn decades of Pharisee training. Uh, And then began to wrap his brilliant mind around what the the spirit was teaching him at the time. So we certainly have good company when it comes to wrestling with the truth and how it turns our world upside down.
2: Yeah. And I want to be careful. You know, I don't want to give the appearance that we're judging those people because we came from the same camp. Yes, indeed. We were, We're all legalists. We're all recovering legalists when we get in Christ. But some of the statements really magnified how the law and the pride of man can blind the mind from understanding the truth. I remember one of the comments to me was, you need to balance all this grace. And the thought is, well, what do you balance it with? If you understand that grace is the person of Jesus, Titus 2, then you don't want to balance grace (laughs) because it's the incredible abundant life of Jesus flowing through you. Um, And that's why the the New Testament is hyper. You know, we receive grace upon grace. We receive the abundance of grace because it's an abundant life. Uh, But the law blinded them to that. And that's really sad. It
1: certainly did. And they reacted. I remember uh, all these new people started coming. And we had to make a lot of accommodations. We tore down walls. We reversed the, 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 the chairs in our meeting room to allow for more space. Went to multiple services. And uh, some of our old guard began to freeze out. Uh, these new folks, because they were coming, they are spending their lives in churches where they're getting beat up, uh, in South Louisiana with uh, a lot of tradition and uh, catechism and what have you. And they're hearing freedom in life and they want to learn more. So they come to a church expecting everyone there to be excited as they are about the message of life that they're hearing. And they hit a freezer. I remember hearing, uh, people coming to what's wrong with these people they're just so cold so harsh uh almost like they're stiff arming and that goes back to uh the tumult i think that those folks felt and that was reacting the only way i guess they knew how is to is to keep what they saw as a as a disruption at a great
2: distance at least as great a distance as possible yeah you know i think john as i meditated on that over the years too you know the church where we were elders together, where I'm still there, was very small. And it had been small for a long, long time. And I think sometimes we kind of like that because it gives us a semblance of control. And when you know we candidated, one of the things I asked them is, if, if you're not willing to go wherever God wants to take you as a church, then don't call me here because I'm willing to spend my life for Jesus, but I'm not willing to waste it. But when that church grew, there was the loss of control. And I, I think that's one of the sneaky things that church people can do. You know, you understand we don't really have much control in this world. Control is kind of an illusion. But if I control my church... Uh, then I've got something. And, you know, I might not be able to control my spouse, but I can control the church. And so it provided an outlet for a semblance of security. I really think that's kind of what was happening.
1: Well, you know, listen to your talk. um, The Spirit just brought back a memory from way, way back there. When I first started attending that church before you were called to be pastor, And I asked about the size of the church because it was very small. And I was told with a certain amount of pride in their answer that, well, we're a backdoor church. We want people to come just because of you know, just because of getting to know us and relating with us. We don't have a showy pastor. We don't have anything that will draw anybody in from the street. We're mostly a backdoor church. And that certainly fits with your experience after you
2: got there. It's hmm. interesting. You know, um, one of the things that's really sad in my mind as I look back and and again, I don't want to appear critical at all, but you know, when you follow the law, you always have that finger to point at, in terms of the law. You have that finger to point at at others. And I remember there was this one person that had a, a sinful pattern that they could not break free from. And it got worse. And the person spouse came to me and said, the reason they've gotten worse Is because of all the grace you're teaching them. And, you know, I I tried to share with them wait a minute, let's go to Father's Word. Romans 6 says that if you have grace, Titus 2 as well, it teaches us to not sin. Yes. So we really can't blame grace for sinful behavior. In fact, if you're going to live under the law, which was the real issue, Romans 7 says the power of sin will use the law to stir up more sin. So maybe the reason they're sinning more is because you're putting the law on them and the power of sin is being stirred up in their lives. And you've been a hindrance to them (laughs) receiving the grace of God, which would keep them from sinning. But I wasn't able to get anywhere with that person. How dare you cloud the issue with the truth, Frank? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so sad because, you know, it it was, uh, again, I think it was a law issue. By pointing a finger at at me in a way, they kept themselves in a place of uh, self-sufficiency that the Holy Spirit never wanted them to live in false self-sufficiency. Yes, yes, that's a good you know, word.
1: you know you're talking about uh, the unexpected impacts of the law in our lives. Um, as we're as we're talking here, we had mentioned earlier that um, one of the reasons that I think people struggled was that it was it's hard to unlearn everything you thought you knew. And when you spent decades, uh, understanding law and applying it to your life so that you feel comfortable with it. What I've seen is that law is like a, like a mushroom fungus. Once it gets a, gets a foothold, it grows into all kinds of places. And I believe that some of the practices in that church that we began to change uh, were there because they too were rooted in the concept of law. Here's one mm. that comes to mind. Uh, for many, many years, uh, for the first few years I was there before you arrived, um, it was a practice that they uh, they would devote 10% of their annual giving, whatever that was, uh, to missions. And the missions committee would invest as it saw fit. Well, I remember when uh, when this question came up after you got there and our attendance was tripling. And of course, our Budget was tripling. They still wanted the ten percent. You know they were entitled to it. It was theirs. I remember that phrase exactly. That's our money that we do with as we wish. And we simply asked them, "Well, please pray about a vision. What would you like to do? We don't care about giving the money. It's not ours. It's God's money. But what would you like to do with it? Where would you like to invest it?" And they just knee jerk and just push back because we were taking control away from them over what they thought was their money. When all we're trying to do is introduce um, what's what father might be leading us as a church to do. In light of all we've learned, where do we want to invest this money? That's a fair question to ask. And yeah. they just blew their corks. I remember that going on for months and they sought out counsel from a, a speaker we brought in and they pulled them aside and laid out their case. And I remember him saying, why are you complaining? Just shut up and give them a mission and give them a plan. <laughs> Tell them where <how> you <laughs> want to spend the money. What's wrong with that? I think it's a great idea. I wish wow. every church would
2: do it this way. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating because the heart, I think of the elders, if they had put a plan out that was, wow, we would might have given them 20%. That's right.
1: It, uh, wasn't, it wasn't a percentage issue.
2: Yeah, It was a spirit-led issue. Rather than function on principles, uh, just as an individual doesn't function by principles, but by the person of the Holy Spirit, the church should function by the person of the Holy Spirit. And again, that was a structure issue that just created havoc to move them away from the principle to the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, and again, John, you know, I look back, and you know, maybe we should have been more patient, and maybe we should have put arms around people, and uh, but I don't know. And that one of the things, I don't know, I, just a heart issue. You know, when you grow up in religion, and then you go to cemetery, almost said cemetery, <laughs> and they they feed you a mixture of old and new covenants which, you know, when you add grace to law, the law loses its holy terror. When you add law to grace, grace loses its freeing power. And you end up with a hodgepodge that doesn't work. And then finally your eyes are opened. Um, There's a sense in which you're a little angry. You feel like you've been lied to. And then there's a sense like, no more. You know, I'm gonna draw my sword. And we're going to live in the purity of the new covenant.
1: If it kills so you. <laughs> there, was,
2: <laughs> there was kind of this warrior attitude of take no prisoners and set this thing right. And, you know, maybe we should have been a little more patient. I don't well,
1: know. I'm not sure that we weren't <laughs> patient. Uh, when I think about how Jesus handled conflict, uh, I see both. I see patience and then I see him flipping tables. And going toe to toe. So there's a place for both. I guess the importance is that uh, whatever you do, you need to trust that the spirit is instructing you that this is precisely what you need to do. Yeah. Because it, uh, it certainly left a lot, I wouldn't say wounded necessarily, maybe I would, but it certainly left a lot of people with a, a, a distaste in their mouths for some of the things that we were doing. And I'm not sure how much of that was due to our practices or how much was due to just their
2: resistance. Yeah. And, you know, some of those people, um, of course, many of the people in the church had their eyes open and became our great allies. Yes. Uh, I remember the one gentleman who, John, he would take me out to lunch every Monday and tell me everything I was doing wrong. And I had to cancel the lunches because I didn't want to get, you know, nausea. (laughs) And then I had to tell him one night that I was having a hard time not seeing him as the enemy. And finally, Father opened his eyes and he is to this day uh, my greatest ally in the body of Christ here. Uh, And some of those people came back and said, we got it. We understand now, Mm. of course, many of them have not come back and we just have to trust the Holy Spirit. They are his kids. He loves them. They named the name of Jesus and just trust that in time, he will open their eyes to see the glory of the finished work of Christ. Right. Agreed. Agreed.
1: Uh, My friend, we are getting short on time, but there's one more topic I want to bring up before we wrap it up today, and we'll have to come back again next time. But uh, this is is another practice, and this concerns music. Now, I've got to preface my statements by saying that the time in which we were having these conversations and wrestling with music was in really the early to mid-90s, and that's a long time ago. It's more than 25 yeah. years ago now. And so a lot of churches were wrestling with the same questions we wrestled with, uh, the change from organs and pianos to, uh, to musicians, to drums, to guitars, uh, to full bands that are commonplace now. And so this is no longer the issue that it once was, but it was an issue because it really was a case where We were taking control again away from the people who always had it a certain way and opening it up to what the Holy Spirit wanted to do. I recall that we formed uh, what we call the worship committee and we charged them, uh, gave them six months and a budget, you know, go study worship, come back with recommendations. And we started pouring through every aspect of our worship and asking these questions, is Jesus and Jesus alone being elevated? Is our dependence on him being highlighted? Is his life at the forefront of every worship act we do? And frankly, a lot of the things that we did, a lot of the songs that we sang, didn't uh, answer yes to those questions. And so they disappeared. It turns out that a lot of those songs and practices kind of were sacred cows to some of those folks uh, because they were so traditional and so safe and so familiar
2: to them. Uh, Do you remember those days? I'm sure you do. Absolutely. And you know, John, that does continue to be an issue to this day. We sing songs that are not biblically correct. Um, You know, we used to sing, uh, take not thy spirit from me. Now, that's a great Old Testament verse from David, but has nothing to do with the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is in you and has sealed you until the day you're delivered into the kingdom. So a lot of the songs we were singing were old covenant songs. Uh, you remember, we read that book together, Juan Carlos Ortiz, oh, one yes. brother, brother, uh, dear friend. Uh, but he wrote a song and he says, you know, he was in a church speaking and they sang their opening hymn. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. And he sang along. And then about three songs later, they sang, Lead me to the river because I'm so dry. And he said, Wait a minute, <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> and then he said, I went to another church and and they said, Since Jesus came into my heart. And then a couple songs later they sang, Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And he, wait a minute, did he leave? <laughs> yeah, where and is he? That,
1: oh, <laughs> go ahead. No, he he must have stepped out for coffee. What happened to him? Yeah,
2: <laughs> and when we read that book, you know, we got to thinking, my goodness, and you know that practice is going on today. We're singing so many songs in the church that are Old Testament, and it would be okay to sing them if we pointed that out and said, these words no longer apply to us. Isn't that glorious? Let's worship God together that that doesn't apply to us, but that's not how they're singing the songs, and so people get confused, and I think the church has to become editorial with the songs that we sing and change the words if they're not in accordance with the New Testament.
1: Yes, I agree. And uh, my earlier comments were basically centered around, uh, I remember, uh, bringing the first drum beat ever into the church. Oh, And uh, some people called it the demon box. So that no longer is an issue. I mean, there are some (laughs) drum sets in churches that dwarf anything you see on the rock concert tour. Uh, But the issue about the words and the message and the mingling of the covenants, Uh, I listened to Christian Radio Today. And you can sit there and say, No, nope, that's good. But no, nope, that part, they just missed it right there. And uh, because they just don't know. Yeah. They just don't know, which makes it ever so important that they hear the full gospel. Just as Paul said in Romans chapter one, you know, hey, saints, I'm fixing to come see you. I can't wait to preach the gospel to you. Well, they're already saints. And so he's coming to tell them the full gospel. And if you read through the rest of Romans, that's a pretty powerful full gospel that he delivers to them. Oh,
2: goodness, that we've died and been resurrected already. Seated in heaven. Unbelievable.
1: And it changes everything that we say, everything we think about, everything we do. It changes everything, Frank. The cross changed everything.
2: Yes, it did.
1: Yes, okay my friend we are about out of time any last comments before we wrap this episode up today
2: Just two maybe can we start with that issue of the drums again because I want to use that as a springboard to teach a very important New Testament truth and we don't have time for it today Okay but then the other is to say you know the purpose John behind what we're doing with this series is not to put people down not to exalt ourselves but to do what Paul said to do in the book of Galatians, which is stand free in the freedom with which he died to make us free. And freedom, it took a fight to get us free that the Lord Jesus fought. But if we're going to stay free, we have to fight that battle with the truth of Father's word. Amen and amen.
1: Okay, friends, thanks again for joining us this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. Uh, Please check out our website, ourresolutehope.com. Take a few moments to browse around there. We've got lots of resources for you to look at. Uh, Please send us an email, sign up for our mailing list, uh, get our newsletter. Let us hear from you. We'd like to know uh, what's going on in your life, how we can pray for you, and uh, if any of the materials we produce actually has uh, borne fruit in your lives. Check us out also on our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Pastor Frank's there all the time. And you can hear our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And as we sign off, we remind you once more uh, with our verse from Hebrews 6, that we have this hope, and by the way, it's a living hope, Peter tells us, We have a resolute hope that's an anchor for our souls. And what's that hope? It's not a what, it's a who. Choose hope. Choose Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life. He wants to live his life with you, in you, and through you as you trust him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.